We are in a new series called It's Complicated, and we're going to be uh, looking at family and its relationship with culture through the eyes of Paul and his letter to the Ephesians. So our, our deep dive tonight is kind of going to be the first four chapters of Ephesians, and then next week we're going to look at chapters five and six, particularly as it relates to uh, husbands and wives and children and employers and employees and putting on the full armor of God. And so we'll look at um, uh, a sort of a, a, like I said, it's not as deep a dive as we could do. I, I could spend a year on Ephesians. Uh, it's one of my favorite uh, books that informs discipleship. Uh, and that's why I would choose it to talk about culture, uh, because the uh, the culture that Paul um, experienced in a in as he wrote to the Ephesians was in a lot of ways the same and in a lot of ways different from the one that we're in today. So let's kind of dive into that. Who knows anything about the city of Ephesus? Anybody been there? Bill, you remember it? Uh, yes, I do. It's Tell in, me about it. It's in Turkey, and uh, it's where uh, John took and Mary, and she is supposedly buried there someplace. He's buried there someplace, supposedly, although... All right. So there's there's a lot of archaeology and then there's a lot of story. Um, Ephesus in Paul's day was on the western edge of Asia Minor. If you look on a map, it is directly across the Aegean Sea from Athens. So Athens in Greece on the east coast of Greece and Ephesus on the west coast of what is now Turkey, then Asia Minor. Uh, Ephesus was one of the largest cities in Asia Minor. Um, you wouldn't know it today because the, the port has sort of silted in and, and there's probably four or five miles of coastline that didn't exist when Paul uh, was there. Um, if you go to Ephesus today, you, um, you would uh, uh, take a bus probably from the port itself into the, uh, the old city of Ephesus, and it was a magnificent city. And the, the reason that I bring all that up is because it was, it was a very New York City kind of city. It was a very New Orleans kind of city, very Atlanta kind of city. It wasn't, it wasn't like Philippi, just this, this whistle stop on the Ignatian Way. Uh, this, this was a, a, a large metropolis. Um, <clears throat> have any of you ever seen the, um, the Colosseum at Ephesus? At its peak, it held 20,000 people, 20,000. So it, it held as many people as, do we still call it Phillips Arena? What do we call the, where the Hawks play? State Farm. State Farm. State. Think of the capacity of that arena and a coliseum in Ephesus where if you stood on the stage, the acoustics were so good, you could whisper and they could hear you in the upper seats. And the Romans designed that. It was a very Roman city. If you walk through it today, uh, they, they've actually excavated a whole lot of first century Ephesus. And the, uh, the library there is just uh, absolutely stunning. Um, the columns, the, the detail that's there. You can tell how the streets are laid out. There's a public bath. Uh, there's a brothel that's there. It's got a sign that advertises that. It's not in business anymore, but... Uh, <laughs> is that the one that you had you went to the library and then there was a tunnel to it so your wife didn't know where you're going? Exactly. 
I wasn't going to bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I so that was a, I remember that. Lots so, of secret places. Yeah, they went to visit another house. <laughs> so Ephesus, as Bill said, it is suspected that Ephesus was where the Apostle John uh, went at the end of his life. We know that he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, that the Roman uh, uh, leadership, the Roman uh, emperor uh, was tired of him and had him exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which is in the sort of where the Mediterranean meets the Aegean Sea. And, uh, and, and he, didn't, he didn't die there he likely went from there to Ephesus, where he probably finished the Gospel of John, and maybe he finished the book of Revelation. We're, we're pretty sure he started Revelation in a cave on Patmos, but he, uh, he likely would have finished it in Ephesus, and the, the legend or the, the history, the story says that that's where John is buried and possibly uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus as well. I, I don't know why. I, I don't know why he would be so far away from the uh, from uh, Canaan, from uh, Jerusalem, from uh, Rome. I, I don't know why he would be so far away from those things, except that uh, Ephesus was uh, by legend where he uh, went to die. Uh, how, how long was he in, a, in, a, in jail? And, um, you know, and uh, Patmos. Nobody really knows. Um, they think that the dating of the Gospel of John is somewhere around 90 AD. And to put that in perspective, Ephesians was written about 61 AD. And so Paul wrote Ephesians while he was still alive. Timeline, you remember about 61 AD, Paul was in prison, but not um, not the dungeon prison in Rome. Uh, he would get out of prison on this day, and then in 2 Timothy, that's when we find that he's in the dungeon prison and, and likely uh, near execution. But in 61, he wrote, uh, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, um, the, the pastoral epistles. Uh, you remember General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians? Anyway, uh, the, he wrote those four while he was in prison in Rome, and then he was let out of prison and did some more ministry, then back in prison, and probably was executed around 68. Uh, Peter was executed around the same time, but John outlived all of them. He, uh, he is the only uh, of the apostles to die in a way that wasn't violent. Um, even though he was tortured, uh, legend has it that he was boiled in oil. Uh, he was tortured unbelievably, but he died of old age, and uh, he died likely in Ephesus, so uh, I'm, I'm guessing mid to late 80s when he was from, uh, went from Patmos to Ephesus. Ephesus. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't be that far. Because he, he spent a lot of he spent a lot of time in Ephesus. Right? Wasn't that like his home? Uh, Paul or John? Oh, Paul. Yeah, Paul spent two years there. Okay. And uh, Paul, uh, can all of you hear, Skip, okay? Can you hear the conversation in the room? Uh, so John went there at the end of his life. Paul went there maybe mid-50s, and he spent two years there. He had three, three journeys there. Yeah, yeah. Paul touched Ephesus probably three times, but he... He he, and if we were good, if we, if we want the backstory, you can go to Acts chapter nineteen. That's where that's where the story of Paul in Ephesus takes place. And one of the the reasons Paul had to leave Ephesus is that he 
He, do you remember in, in Acts 19, he, he riled up the, uh, the craftsmen who made the idols that they worshipped. And as this great revival broke out in Ephesus, he was more and more dialed into uh, things of the spirit rather than things of the flesh. And the, uh, the sales for uh, idols went downhill, kind of like oil during COVID. It just, uh, there, there was just no demand because people were, were receiving Christ as Savior. They were becoming disciples and they had no need for idol worship. And the silversmith, uh, Marius, maybe, um, he got so upset that he riled up the town council and they basically ran Paul out of town. Demetrius. Demetrius. Um, reading it, that's the only reason I know because <laughs> we were reading it. We changed it. Well, I didn't read it. Well, I mean, that's, that's Ephesus, but, but that's my point is that if you think today about all of the things that we who are trying to lead families face, you know, we who are dads, who are moms, who are who are trying to direct the course of our families, uh, those of us on pastoral staff, those who are, who are helping to uh, navigate family life within a church community. There's, there's stuff that's it's just hard, right? We, we're not really sure uh, what marriage is anymore. Apparently, anybody who's related to anybody can declare that they're marriage. Uh, we have a, a Supreme Court justice who can't even define a woman. We have uh, cultural uh, issues that, uh, uh, and it's not that she can't define a woman. She she simply is is influenced by this this culture, this worldview shaping culture that's quite frankly influenced the church a whole lot more than it's influenced the Supreme Court. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage a Supreme Court justice. I'm just saying that it, she, she was trapped in a dialogue that's so typical of what we're trapped in today. And that's, it's about worldview. It's about, uh, worldview is always about who gets to make the rules and what rules we will follow. And so if we embrace a, a Christian worldview, we we say that God is king of the universe and that the the, the biblical story, uh, uh, Greg, you guys do it every Friday morning. The, the biblical story is that God created the earth. He created man. Man uh, had a fall because he uh, wanted to place his ego above the uh, the authority of God, who who makes the rules. How, will I or will I not abide by the rules? Uh, man then lived in sin. Um, God uh, sent his son to offer the required sacrifice for the sin and all who would place their trust in Christ. So it's, it's creation, fall, redemption, life. And, the, and, a, and a, a Christian worldview says that God created, that man fell, that God redeemed, that only in Jesus can we live life. Uh, a, a pluralistic or, a, or, or an alternative worldview that we have today inspired by the Enlightenment and then by uh, humanism and then by postmodernism and then uh, by, um, I guess, post-truth. We talked about that in a sermon not too long ago where no longer are we even regarding an evidence-based society. The truth is what I want it to be. And truth is defined more by my emotion than it is by uh, evidence. So Paul wrote in a very similar place. The fact that they had idol salesmen tells you there was lots of gods. There was lots of authorities. There was lots of, of places where our trust was laid. If I want uh, children, I, I offer something to the gods. If I want a business partner to become ill and die, I would uh, offer to other gods and I would offer to gods about this. And 
offer to gods about that. The fact that they had a 20,000 seat uh, theater tells you that entertainment was important to them, just like entertainment is important to us. And, and my point of all that is that when we start looking at the impact of culture on our families, we have worldviews now that uh, are all too happy to raise our kids for us. We have an entertainment industry that, that rarely depicts a healthy family. I can't remember a show where the, uh, the parents weren't buffoons or, or the dad was incompetent, the children clearly in control. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember a television show that, that, that respected a family to the point that we could look at the show and say, hey, that's a biblical family. Uh, the, the father is the spiritual leader of the home. Uh, the, the mom uh, respects and relates to her husband uh, as a couple. They, uh, uh, they teach and, and model uh, what a biblical lifestyle is for their children. I, I, I can't name a show that was like that. Commercials, too. I can't believe a show on commercials that 40 years ago or less. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and Peronis and all this stuff. And take well, this pill. that's kind of the summary is that entertainment, in a lot of ways, government. Uh, think about all, all of the things that make up culture, right? <clears throat> Art, economy, <clears throat> um, um, value, beauty, uh, government family structure, education, those are all cultural elements. When, when a sociologist says, uh, I, I want to study culture, those are the things they study. When, when, when they unearth Ephesus, they're trying to look for clues about the art, clues about the family structure, clues about the government, clues about the economy, clues about uh, the, the, the way people acted and interacted and reacted. And so, so a study of culture is a study of basically artifacts. And so when we look at our culture today, all of our artifacts are moving away from a biblical worldview and towards a secular worldview. That was the landscape Paul had in Ephesians, and that is our landscape today. So that's kind of the introduction of the book of Ephesians. It's really a cool book because there wasn't a problem. He he wasn't writing like he was with Galatians. Uh, The church in Galatia, they they had issues. And and at at one point, Paul said, who has bewitched you, Galatians? Who's fooled you? Who's pulled the wool over your eyes? But in Ephesians, it's sort of like Philippians. There's there's, there's a, a, a pretty smooth road, but in Ephesians, you can tell he's writing to a metropolitan city. He's saying, you who are people of faith, you can make a difference in your culture. If you as individuals and if your families adhere to a biblical worldview, you will make a difference in your culture. At the end of Ephesians, we know that he says there is a, a place where it becomes a defensive posture, uh, that, that, that just modeling a biblical lifestyle is not enough. You have to put on the full armor of God. You've got to protect your, your head, your hands, the uh, breastplate, the shield, the sword, all of those things. At, at the end of Ephesians, he says there is, a, there, there is a place that our posture and culture is outward facing and not inward facing, but for five chapters in Ephesians, he says, this is what disciples do. Now, who remembers what we've talked about before about almost anything Paul writes? Say that again. We've talked about it before. Paul has a a pattern when he writes. Okay. it's, It's... he, he does what to believe and then what to do with that belief, how to think, how to act. And usually it's, it's kind of right down the middle. 
here in Ephesians, it's three chapters of what to believe and three chapters of how to behave. In Philippians, it's two and two. Colossians, it's two and two. Romans, it's 11 and five. <laughs> but he, he, he tells us, and the break is always pretty apparent. So let's look at some of the things he says in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. He, uh, he introduces his letter to us. And he says, um, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace be from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The typical greeting. Then he goes on to talk about the uh, the the Christian journey, okay? <clears throat> the uh, chapter one, verses one through 14, it's kind of like a hymn of praise. So, so he starts off with adoration uh, to and, and about God. And, uh, and, and then he, he, he says in verse 15, for this reason, having heard of the faith, the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So in chapter one, he he basically exhorts God. He, he, he lets us be reminded that as we look at families, as we look at culture, first, we've got to remember who God is and what he is about and, and, and sort of get our priorities in order. One person outlined Ephesians just with the three words, sit, walk, stand. <laughs> he said, we are seated in Christ. We walk worthy of the calling and we stand firm in our faith. That, that's sort of an outline of the book of Ephesians, sit, walk, stand. And, and so he, he, he first talks about the praise that we have uh, for God and, and the blessings of, of being a follower of Christ. Um, and and he, he wants to make sure that we understand that the gospel is, is a way of thinking. The gospel is a worldview. All right, you with me? You, you remember where we're going? The gospel is the worldview, biblical worldview, Christian worldview not secular, not based on the enlightenment or modernity or post-modernity or post-truth it's in our, or critical theory or, or Marxism or paganism or atheism. It's, it is a biblical worldview, the gospel worldview. All right, still with me. So he says, I pray, verse 18 in chapter one, the eyes of your heart are enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, the inheritance in the saints, the surpassing greatness of his power. Those are These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. So he's saying the gospel is the worldview. And then in verse one of chapter two, he says, here's how the gospel impacted you. And some of you remind me that this is one of the few sermons that you remember that I preached. This is the preach. This is the sermon I preached on the barn find Camaro. That I want to find a dead car and bring it back to life. And in chapter two, verse one, he says, "You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were an old car at the corner of a junkyard without any hope of ever running again." without a master mechanic putting his hands on you. And we were dead in our trespasses. <clears throat> then he says, and one person crudely says, one of the biggest butts in the Bible <laughs> is in chapter two and verse four, but God being rich in mercy. You remember on Sunday, I, I quoted Alistair Bagthub, <laughs> the Scottish preacher who said that any, any 
explanation of why you deserve to be in heaven that starts with the word I is already off base. If it's in first person, you're already off track. It's got to start with he, but God, he being rich in mercy. I was dead in my trespasses, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, even when I was dead, raised up with him. And, and the, the, the key verse or verses to the first half of the book of Ephesians are in uh, 5, 6, 7, 8. Um, he says, but God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our transgression, he made us alive. He was the agent who acted on us. Now, lest you kind of get lost going, Alan, what in the world does this have to do with family? A lot of you know my story. Um, my kids haven't always behaved. I raised them the best I could, um, but I have had to get both of them out of jail. I've had DUIs and don't know where they are and just lots of drama with my kids. And I know that I can't fix them, right? I've done all I can do. I, I've punished them. I've taught them. I've loved them. I've bailed them out. I've sobered them up. I can't fix them. They are dead in their trespasses. Only God. Only God. He is the agent. He is the, the master mechanic that can bring the dead car back to life. But God, only God. And when we look at our families, we have to talk about divorce. And we have to talk about adultery. And we have to talk about wayward kids. And we have to talk about uh, uh, chronically ill uh, family members. And we have to talk about mental health. And we have to talk about homelessness, and we have to talk about desperation over being able to provide for families. All of those are dynamics in families. And, and to be a Christian doesn't solve homelessness. It doesn't solve poverty. It, 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 but but to, to be a follower of Christ, it makes me look at divorce differently. It makes me look at wayward kids differently. I am Helpless and hopeless to fix my kids. But I have a father that I can go to. I think I, I shared the story. I was mowing the grass in New Orleans, uh, just whining and beating myself up about my prodigal son who was off the rails again. And God convicted me, Alan, you're the prodigal son. You're the one who won't trust me to fix your son. You're the one who has gone to a far country to trust other things rather than coming home to the father to trust me and my plan. And when we think about families, this, this is where the rubber meets the road. Ephesians chapter uh, two, you were dead, but God being rich in mercy, being full of love, but God uh, uh, through his grace, through his act of mercy, for by grace, you are saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. You, you can't even conjure up faith. It's the gift of God. We are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's going to come back to that theme of walking in just a minute. So, the rest of chapter two, and then on into chapter three, he tells us the what, what, what to believe. Uh, a few of the verses, uh, uh, verse 13, chapter two, uh, now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I am seated in Christ. I am, I am solid in Christ. Uh, I, I grieve when relatives die. I, 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 I'm sad and, and, and frustrated when my kids are off the rails. I, 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 I am really, really sad when I see marriages broken up by divorce. 
but I am encouraged that in all of those situations, he is drawing us near to himself. And when we stop beating ourselves up over the conditions that we live in and rest, sit in the the gift of God, which is the blood of Christ that draws us near, then verse 14, he himself is our peace. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He abolished the, in his flesh, in his humanity, Jesus, the enmity, which is the law of commandments, the new paradigm that we talked about uh, on Sunday. And so in chapter three, he says, so you understand chapter one, God is great. Chapter two, he has allowed you to uh, be made alive in him. Chapter three, now you are a steward of that, that gospel. Now you are a steward of that worldview. Now, now you in your families, now you in your job, now you at your school, now you in your neighborhood, you, you model that 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 way of thinking and now you become salt and light in the culture so chapter uh three ends by uh another christ hymn of benediction that starts in chapter uh, three verse 14 for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, and he ends in the benediction. To him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And then in chapter 4, he begins to tell us what to do with all of this. Now, do I need to stop and catch up with anybody? Everybody all right online? I do have one question. All right, Glory has a question. This kind of backing up you said the things to remember sit walk and stand can you tell me what those were again to the description of those you are seated in christ sit walk stand you are seated in christ okay you walk worthy of the calling and you stand firm in your faith thanks that's the outline of the book of ephesians and he's been telling us in chapters one and two that we are seated in Christ. And, and justifiably, he spends three chapters on that, right? He says, you stand firm in your faith. And that's kind of what chapter six is about when he talks about the full armor of God. Great question. Anybody else? All right, chapter four. <laughs> chapter four, last chapter tonight. Yeah, we'll do five and six next week. What do we know about verse one in chapter four? Therefore. And what does that mean? What is it there for? We've got to look and see what it's there for. Taylor's out of her car now. Look, there she goes. First. Hey, Taylor, <laughs> my Taylor. First, good to one, see you. Four, Verse one in chapter four. I don't say therefore. What does yours say? I must be in the. <coughs> says, Are you in the New says, International Version? It says, as a prisoner for Mine the Lord. That's where That's the New International Version. And then it says. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then I urge you to live yeah. a life worthy of the calling you have received. It doesn't use the word therefore at all. So the word then. It, well, mine says therefore. He is clearly tying it to the first three chapters. We have the real Bible. Yeah, he's clearly tying it to the first three chapters. And here <clears throat> he says, I entreat you, here you go, Gloria, to walk in a manner worthy of the call. Perfect. So uh, seated um, comes from, I'll find it in a minute, and then walk comes from walk in a manner worthy. <clears throat> and he's talking about discipleship here. 
Okay. Uh, again, we, it, it's about worldview. It's counterintuitive. Uh, a, a worldview of the world uh, says that we uh, are oppressed by someone or something. We need to be liberated by someone or uh, something. And, and along the way, we look for victims. God says that we're all victims. We're victims of sin. We're victims of a sinful, fallen world. We are seated in Christ, raised up. We walk worthy of our calling individually and as families. Now, in chapter 4, verse 1, the verbs are plural. So, at least he's talking about the community of faith, the Ephesian church. The way that the language of Ephesians is, it's, it's, it feels a little too formal to be addressed to a group of people he spent two years with. And so the thought is that it was likely intended to be a letter that was passed around all the churches. It doesn't, it doesn't address a specific problem. Galatians addresses a problem at Galatians, at Galatia. Philippians, it thanks them for a love offering that was collected at Philippi. Uh, Colossians, it addresses a heresy that was at the church of Colossae. But the, the, the letter of, of uh, Ephesians feels much more like a circular letter that was meant to be passed among all the churches. So when he says walk worthy, <clears throat> in the South, we would say walk worthy, y'all. <laughs> All of you walk worthy. So individual, yes. Sit, walk, stand individually. But also think about how your community of faith impacts the culture. So he says, now, now he gives a list of, of, of uh, characteristics. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, diligent to preserve unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. One writer talked about where Christianity got sideways with culture. And uh, I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, I, I mentioned Reinhold uh, Niebuhr's Christ in Culture. And he talked about the, the different ways we can approach culture. We can be uh, Christ against culture, Christ apart from culture, Christ in culture. Christ apart from culture means we just sequester, we just uh, monastery our way into our little Christian bubbles and don't get outside of it. Uh, against culture means we rail against it. Uh, we point out how evil it is and the people are in it. And we create uh, a dialogue that's thoroughly toxic. Christ in culture, uh, according to Niebuhr and others, is that we live out the gospel in the context of culture and thus fulfill the mandate that Jesus gave us to be salt and light in the culture. We don't run from it. We don't battle against it with uh, similar tactics. Uh, we don't... Uh, we don't slander the, the, the people who are in the culture. We simply hold up biblical values and let people draw the comparisons themselves. Now, that's hard. Okay, when somebody says ugly things about me or my family or about my Jesus, I, I want to, I, I said Sunday, I, I don't take that well. I, I want to I refute them. I want to uh, tear them down. We, I spent most of the seventies learning how to uh, answer people who were in cults or who were in other faiths. How do you talk to a Catholic? How do you talk to a Presbyterian? How do you talk to a uh, Jehovah's Witness when they come knocking at your door? Here's how to just tear them down. And we have a whole generation of young adults who remember only that. They only remember an angry church. 
They only remember a church that was against everything. They they were raised in a church that that uh, that that picketed or that that protested or that 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 went on television or that aligned with with political parties. That's that's all they know. And what Paul is telling us here is that in humility and gentleness, patience, forbearance, diligence to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit. This is chapter four, verse four, one body, one spirit, just as you were called one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of them, grace was given according to the measure of God's gift. So he makes sure that we understand that not only as individuals, chapters two and three, but as a collective, we are to walk worthy. And then he says, and I've given you some gifts to do that. I haven't left you alone. I haven't told you to go mow the grass and not giving you a mower. I haven't told you to go do brain surgery and not giving you the, the, the skill with your hands and the knowledge with your head. And so in chapter four, uh, verses 11 uh, and following, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up the body in Christ. This relates back to verse 10 and chapter two. You are his workmanship created in Christ to do good works. Well, I'm not going to leave you on an island. I'm going to, I'm going to give you what you need to do good works. I'm going to give you people who will teach. I'm going to give you people who will shepherd. I'm going to give you people who will help you understand the gifts that you have in order that the church may be a beacon in the culture. In order that families can be supported by the church who will be a beacon in the culture. So he says, as a result, verse 14, we're not children anymore. We're not carried around by every wind of doctrine, every every television show in the culture, every political discourse, every uh, uh, thing on Fox or CNN or MSNBC or or any of the rest of them. I, I'm not carried along by the, the toxic arguments of the culture. I, I just want to take a shower and go back to the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> I want to go back to the blessed are you. I want to go back to the uh, uh, don't judge lest you be judged. I want to go back to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will uh, come on to you. I want to go back to chapter five, be uh, you are the salt of the earth. You are the, uh, the the light of the world. You are the city on the hill. I, I want to go back to that worldview and not every wind of doctrine. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects of him who is the head, even Christ. He goes on <clears throat> with some practical examples. He said the contrast, verse 17, um, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Um, and then he talks about the Gentiles. They, they are uh, ignorant. They are darkened in their understanding. Uh, this is pre-Christian. They have become callous. They've given themselves over to sensuality, the practice of every kind. He said, verse 20, you didn't learn Christ this way. You had not been taught this. In reference to the old way of life, the contrasting way of life, uh, what, what does a couple who's divorced do? They seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will fall into place. You can't get caught up in the, in the accusations of the world. It is what it is. The, the marriage, for whatever reason, it didn't stay marriage. But we look forward. Christ in us, Christ through us, Christ with us, Christ in spite of us, and we face forward. What do we do when our kids are off the rails? Do we, do we woe is me? Do I as a pastor go to Timothy and say, it says, if I can't 
uh, keep hold of my own family. I got no business leading the church. Yeah, it says that. Do I camp on that? Do I do I do I say, okay, I'm out of here because I got no business leading a church? Well, I could, or I could say, under God's leadership, I did some things right. I did some things wrong. My kids are making their own choices. It is not because they haven't been exposed to the gospel. I didn't do everything right. I'll be the first to admit. Well, the second, my kids will probably say it. <laughs> but I, I, I know that that we all have things where we look at some scripture and we go, that tells me I'm not good enough. And Paul is saying we walk worthy because for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a free gift of God, lest anyone should boast. For we are Christ's workmanship created in Christ to do good works. And we just get wrapped up in Ephesians and then as he transitions into chapter 5, he ends chapter 4 with verse 32. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving, as God in Christ also forgave you. And he transitions now to what a spirit-filled life looks like, especially in the context of the family. So all of that dovetails into why chapter four and chapter five speak to the spirit-filled family. On 30, do they, we talked about this about today, it says, what it says, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That means your Holy Spirit within you, right? It's almost like a self-person, like, you know, that's, and then kind of in the notes, my body says this means it's a living person or something inside. Your Holy Spirit is a person. Don't grieve them. Like, <laughs> don't make them upset or mad. Is that how you read that? Well, absolutely. And that, that, that sets us up for chapter five when he says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto Christ. If, if the spirit is in you, if Christ is in you for you to grieve the spirit, it's by the list of things yeah. that characterize a worldview that is not uh, a, a Christian. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So the, the, the picture there is that wives respect and allow their husbands the opportunity to do the right thing. Right. That's the best definition I've ever heard of submit. You respect your husband and allow him the opportunity to do the right thing. Set him up to do the right thing in Christ. Submit to your husbands in the Lord. There's a book called Love and Respect. Yeah. And it is amazing. Great. And I have, and it, it's about that. And it, it says God told the woman to respect her husband because he didn't have to tell the woman to love because the woman is made of love. And the man needs respect, but the man's not made of love. So he has to be told to love the wife. And when I have had issues in my marriage and I have put that into practice, it works every time. I mean, and it, but I get tired of doing it all. You know, it's anyway, but it is so true. I mean, it says a man can, uh, a man needs respect. And he can't love without respect. And a woman can't respect without love. So, Great place to kind of wrap up tonight. What is the foundation for all of it? The, the title of the sermon on Sunday is Simplify the Foundation. Yeah. Simplify the Foundation. How can I love my son unless Christ loves me? Because the world teaches me to repay evil with evil. And, and disrespect with disrespect. And if my son is going to act that way, to hell with it, right? And I, I don't mean that disrespectful. I mean, I, I mean, the world would tell me, I don't care if he goes to hell. I don't care if he goes to heaven. I don't care if he, the, that's what the world tells me. But if I simplify my foundation, my foundation is Christ. I, I am absolutely humble because I was dead in my trespasses. But God, 
being rich in mercy, being alive in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now I don't repay evil with evil to my son. I repay evil with good. I don't feel like it. I'd love to make him suffer a little bit. Sorry, it's the way we dads are. But but that's not my foundation, right? My foundation is not a worldview that repays evil for evil. My foundation is a worldview that repays evil with good, knowing that in that good, the old cliche, my life is the only Bible that some people will ever read. My testimony is the only shared experience that someone may hear. And, and if Christ is who he is, who he says he is, he says, if I am lifted up, I will draw men to me. It is the Holy Spirit in us that draws people into the conversation. I cannot act naturally. I have to act supernaturally. Go ahead, Gloria. I was just going to say, the thing you have to remember is that any effort that we make to our God's word does not return void. Right. And so if we have talked them the best we can, when they oh, when they're old, they will not depart from it. They will hope, you know, remember that and come back. The way I picture it in, in my mind is like this. All the efforts that, that you make as a parent to teach your children and, and do all that, I, I picture it as like grains of wheat or something. You know, that we're like planting seeds or planting wheat into their lives. And it maybe look like not much to us and it's just kind of scattered or whatever, but God can take our brains and turn it into a bread of life. And he can, he, just like he did, the, this, this is a vision of how I have it. It's like, just like he did the loaves and the fish, he can take the little breadcrumbs that we've offered and turn it into something. Nelson, what you got? Well, I, <clears throat> I happened to hear a lecture, uh, I won't mention from who, but uh, about one and two, and he said, why, if all of this is true, the power and all the things in one and two, why do we act like paupers? That was the, the, the nature of his uh, uh, summing up of one and two. Yeah, pauper. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's the, the old illustration of the, uh, the person who ate Ritz crackers in their stateroom on a cruise ship. Because they didn't know that all the meals were included. Right. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't afford to go eat because I paid for this cruise. And, you know, third day on the cruise, somebody said, don't you know all the meals are included? And they've been walking by all those things, all these, all this stuff. They've been staring at the riches that were out there without knowing that those were already paid for on their behalf when they bought the ticket. <laughs> And and what and Nelson, you're you're right on target. We why do no, we? I'm have... not right on target. The guy giving the lecture and uh, was right on target, but it really hit me. Well, you know what they say: if you quote one person, it's plagiarism. If you quote lots of people, it's research. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. All right. Well, Sunday we will explore a little bit further the foundation of the family and the collective. That teaches us about mutual submission. Mutual submission will be the, the theme of the solid foundation, the simple foundation. Uh, and we'll talk about that on Sunday and get into chapter five. All right. Thank you, Alan. See you next week. Thank you.